You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. I hope everyone is hanging in there right now in the U.S. To say it's been a stressful week would probably be a massive understatement for most of us. I'm recording this episode on the Friday before this episode releases, so I have no clue if there's been any kind of resolution to what's going on or anything like that. If we're still in limbo about the whole situation, at least for the next 40 minutes or so, you can take a break from modern events and listen to my sonorous fake podcast voice for a little while. It's November, which means we're on to a new theme. For the next three weeks, we'll be covering the history of Walt Disney and the eventual empire that grew from his Kansas City animation studio. This week, we're talking about the man that started it all, Walt Disney, an animator, innovator, and yes, someone with less than savory viewpoints and a dark side. Walt Disney was an international celebrity by the time he was 30, heralded as a genius before the age of 40, has won more Oscars than anyone in film history, and changed the way families go on vacation. He was the man who built a media empire whose name currently emblazons one of, if not the, most powerful film studio in the world. There are many ways to go about examining Walt's life. He was a very busy man with a myriad of interests. For the purposes of this week, we're primarily covering his professional life. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Born on December 5, 1901, in the Chicago neighborhood of Hermosa, Walter Elias Disney was the fourth son of Elias and Flora Disney. Elias worked as a contractor by the time Walt was born, but the family moved to Marceline, Missouri in 1906, where Elias wished to take up farming. This was where the young Walt's artistic prowess began to flourish Marceline would hold a special place in Walt's memory as he grew, as it was the only place he ever felt he truly experienced a childhood. Tiring of farm work, Elias would purchase two Kansas City newspaper routes and move the family to the city in 1911. The newspaper route exhausted Walt, and his grades reflected as such. But the young cartoonist was passionate about developing his craft and enrolled in Saturday classes at Kansas City Art Institute, and also took a correspondence course in cartooning. Elias moved the family back to Chicago in 1917 after purchasing stock in Ozell Company, a jelly manufacturer. It was there that Walt would finish up his high school education while taking night courses at the Chicago Academy of Fine Arts. When World War II broke out, 
Walt attempted to join the army, but was rejected for being only 17 at the time of attempting to enlist. He would, after forging his birth certificate, join the Red Cross a few months later in September of 1918 to work as an ambulance driver. When Walt finally made it to France, the armistice had already been signed. Disney returned from the war back to Kansas City, where he would meet and befriend fellow artist Ub Iwerks. Disney and Iwerks were both employed at a commercial art studio. There, Walt began making a decent amount of money. This allowed him to spend nights on the town, most of which included trips to the cinema. After being laid off from the art studio, Walt and Iwerks then opened up the Iwerks Disney Commercial Artists, but did not manage to attract many customers. The two, in order to pay the bills, got jobs at the Kansas City Film Ad Company, where Walt's interest in cartooning would expand to the world of animation. Walt began studying animation, starting with several library books, including Edward Mybridge's Human Figures in Motion and a book about animating for film. He also studied on how to create characters, format a story, and eventually borrowed a camera to put what he'd learned into practice. He would spend his free time creating short, animated films. The cartoons made Walt locally famous, allowing him to start his own animation company, despite the fact that the sale of the cartoons wasn't enough to cover his overhead. Undeterred, Walt started the Laughagram Studios. He was 20 years old. The Laughagram cartoons, which played at a local theater, were incredibly popular, allowing Walt to hire several animators, including Ub Iwerks. The company didn't last long, and by 1923, Walt couldn't manage to even pay the phone bill, much less anything else. In a last-ditch effort, he scraped together whatever he could find to finance Alice's Wonderland, a 12-minute silent film that combined a live-action Alice with an animated Wonderland. Laughagram folded in late 1923. In July 1923, Walt set his sights west and arrived in Hollywood, despite New York being the epicenter for animation in the United States at the time. Walt chose Hollywood in part because it was where his brother Roy, whom had contracted tuberculosis a few years earlier while serving in the Navy, was located, and also in part because Walt wanted to be a live-action picture director, not an animator. Roy, like their father, thought Walt's ambition to be a picture director was outlandish as he hadn't fallen in love with Hollywood the way his brother was appearing to. After three months of rejection, a New York film distributor named Margaret J. Winkler, the only woman at an executive level in show business at the time, reached out to Walt after losing the rights to two popular cartoons of the era, Out of the Inkwell and Felix the Cat. She signed a six-cartoon deal with Walt to produce the Alice comedies. The Alice comedies were about a young girl and her cat, Julius. Margaret would pay Walt $1,500 per episode. Walt went to Roy with a telegram from Margaret and convinced him to join him in his enterprise. 
They started their business in the back of a real estate office. Walt handled the creative, while Roy set out to acquire financing while looking after general upkeep as well. This was the birth of Disney Studios. While Roy was eager to help out his little brother, he was no animator, something Walt was in dire need of. So, a year after Walt moved to Hollywood, he sent word to Ub Iwerks, who was still located in Kansas City, and convinced him to move west. Walt, while talented, knew Iwerks was the better animator, and more importantly, he was fast. Throughout his career, Walt never minded hiring people that were better than him. He was always focused on putting out the best product he possibly could. Before long, the Disney brothers had a staff of a dozen or so, and things were looking good. They put down roots in Los Angeles and bought lots to build homes right next door to each other. Roy married his longtime sweetheart not long after. During the height of the Alice cartoons, Walt hired a young ink artist named Lillian Bounds in early 1925. The two fell in love and were married by July of the same year. height of the Alice cartoons, a new short was being put out every 16 days. The studio moved to a larger space, during which time Walt informed Roy that the company should not be Disney Studio, but the Walt Disney Studio. Walt believed his vision was the heart of the company, and that was the product they were selling. Roy agreed to the change. After Margaret Winkler gave distribution duties over to her new husband, Charles Mintz, Mintz requested a new cartoon from Disney as Alice was slipping in popularity. The cartoon was intended to be distributed for Universal Pictures in 1927. With iWorks, Walt created Oswald the Lucky Rabbit to compete with the Flesher brothers, Felix the Cat. iWorks handled the animation, and Disney wrote the scripts. Universal was so impressed by the first sketches they saw of Oswald that they immediately ordered 26 episodes. Walt and Mintz's relationship was far less harmonious than what Walt had had between him and Margaret. And in 1928, after trying to negotiate a larger fee to make the Oswald cartoons, Mintz attempted to reduce the payments instead. To add insult to injury, Mintz had managed to persuade the majority of Walt's animators to take his side in the matter. Walt's animators had become frustrated with him, many of whom had worked long hours with little to no pay in the early days, with Walt taking most of the money and pretty much all of the credit. Whether intentional or not, Walt was widely unaware of his staff's dissatisfaction, something that would cost him dearly and not for the last time. Walt refused to bend to Mintz's will and lost all of his animators in the process to Mintz, save iWorks. He also discovered that the intellectual property rights to Oswald belonged to Universal, not Disney. Oswald would carry on without Walt Disney. Once again, Walt and iWorks were back to square one.
Walt was down, but he certainly wasn't out. After a series of intense brainstorming sessions with Iwerks and Roy, Walt came up with the idea for a character that they would own outright. The character that Walt and Ub developed was none other than Mickey Mouse. After receiving Walt's original sketches of the character, Ub refined them to ensure he would be easy to animate. Walt provided the voice until 1947. While Steamboat Willie would be the first cartoon featuring Mickey Mouse to be seen by the public at large, it was the third they actually made. The first two, Plain Crazy and The Gallopin' Gaucho, could not find a distributor. Always looking for new technology, their third short, which was also the first to feature sync sound, would not only be the first sync sound cartoon, but would ensure Walt's rise to success. The cartoon, which they had also struggled to distribute, debuted in 1928. Mickey Mouse became an almost overnight sensation and remains to this day as one of the most prevalent images to stem from American culture. The eventual lysing and merchandising of Mickey Mouse and his crew on anything and everything would cause a huge wave of revenue for Disney. Walt would also become the first household name of animation. As they had done with Oswald, Walt and his brother Roy believed that they were not receiving enough of the profits from Steamboat Willie's distribution. Once again, Walt tried to get more money from their new distributor, Pat Powers, who not only refused to pay him more, but canceled his contract with the Disneys in the process. This time, Iwerks left Walt and signed with Powers, whom promised him a studio under his own name. That same year, Lillian suffered a miscarriage. The mounting professional and personal pressure caused Walt to experience a nervous breakdown in 1931. His doctor's prescription? A vacation. The first real one of Walt's life. After seeing the first Silly Symphony cartoon, Walt's newest series of animated shorts, Walt procured Columbia Pictures as a distributor. These cartoons were much more about art, often making characters via personification. Not long after, Walt produced Flowers and Trees in 1932, implementing three-strip Technicolor, a process Walt had exclusive rights to until 1935. The short would win Walt his first Oscar at the 1932 Academy Awards ceremony, where Walt would also receive an honorary award for creating Mickey Mouse. Another Oscar followed a year later for The Three Little Pigs. By this point, Disney had 200 staff members, seemingly on the top of his game, and a new father. In 1934, Walt, tiring of just doing animated shorts, believed that a feature-length animated film would provide a new challenge for him. So began the saga of the production of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. He announced the project to his staff by performing a one-man show of Snow White at the Hyperion Studio soundstage one evening. When news of the project leaked out of the studio, industry insiders were skeptical, and many were certain that Walt would bankrupt his studio before the film was even completed. One of the naysayers was Roy, but Walt refused to give up on the project, 
eventually wearing Roy down. Roy procured the money from the bank. To get the most realistic animals as was possible at the time, Walt sent the animators to additional drawing classes and even brought real animals into the studio to ensure that they would make them look as real as was possible. The animators also studied things like the smashing of windows and the movement of actors. They even went to acting classes to give characters as much life as possible. Walt got pretty damn close to bankrupting his studio. Snow White ended up costing three times more than the initial budget. Making the film was, by pretty much all accounts, an excruciating process, but they finished the film, and in December 1937, over three years after Walt announced the project, the film was released. Audiences fell in love with the picture. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves was an instant international phenomenon, going on to become the highest-grossing film at the time. Roy managed to pay off all of the company's debts from the film's revenue. Walt received honorary degrees from Harvard and Yale, which called him, quote, the creator of a new language of art. The film would win Walt yet another Special Academy Award, complete with seven miniature Oscars. This was essentially an honorable mention, a consolation prize, if you will, as the film industry didn't, and in many ways still doesn't, recognize animation as a legitimate cinematic art form. This treatment would make Walt feel like an outsider within his own industry for the majority of his career. Now the worldwide leader in animation, Walt's new goal became to release an animated feature film every six months. These films, like Snow White, would be widely based on fairy tales and folklore most cinema-goers would be familiar with. The first two films Walt put into production would become 1940's Pinocchio and 1942's Bambi. Both of these films would struggle immensely in the creative and story departments. Walt was also experimenting with animation and classical music, creating Fantasia, which would eventually come out in 1940. Walt pulled out all the stops for this film, hiring ballerinas, musicians, paleontologists, and astronomers, and many other people from different walks of life to inspire the animations for the eight pieces of music Walt and composer Leopold Sikowski had chosen. Now, with three features in production, the Walt Disney Studio needed a lot more space. Walt moved the company from the Hyperion Complex in Silver Lake over the hill to Burbank, the studio's home to this day. Walt built the studio from the ground up, ensuring that his staff would want for nothing while they were on the lot. The facility had a restaurant, a gym, a hair salon, and a gas station, to name a few. They moved in on December 26, 1939. When released, Pinocchio would perform quite well in the U.S., but the beginning of World War II had, unsurprisingly, led to a massive drop in European box office revenue, where Snow White had been particularly successful. This landed the company in severe debt, having had to heavily borrow from Bank of America to fund not only the films, but Walt's dream studio as well. At Roy's behest, the Walt Disney Studio went public in 1940. Fantasia 
while ambitious, was woefully uneven and was quite polarizing with audiences and critics alike. Many theaters couldn't even exhibit the film, as they did not possess the sound equipment required to show it. The losses from Fantasia meant that the studio was unable to pay its shareholders their quarterly earnings. This led to massive salary cuts, a stricter corporate hierarchy, and certain perks being given only to the highest level individuals. The salaries varied so drastically between the lower level animators to the master animators that many of the lower individuals within the company couldn't even afford to eat in the company cafeteria. Once the company had made public, which meant the salaries were made public, Walt's employees saw that his top creative team members were making anywhere between five to ten times less than him, the woman working in ink and paint at the time, 100 times less. Walt, while previously generous with employee amenities and known for walking the halls to see his employees, was now locked up in his office, a sea of secretaries serving as his guards. This rapid change from the family-style studio at the Hyperion facility to the industrialized one at the new Birdbank location was a punch in the gut to the animators who had been loyal to him, some for over a decade. They weren't the only ones in town who were fed up. It's easy for those not working in the film industry to forget that for every image you see on a screen, there's dozens to thousands of people on the other side who made that image possible in one way or another. Because of their invisibility and often anonymity to the public, they're often not paid well. This has led to strikes from the labor unions over the years, one of which sprung up in the late 1930s, featuring several different unions demanding better working conditions and paid. This string of labor disputes included the Screen Cartoonist Guild, though not the Disney animators at first. One of Walt's top animators, Art Babbitt, was disgruntled with what he was observing. He'd worked on all of the Disney features to that point and was credited for being the primary creator of Goofy. He was also one of Walt's highest paid men. He sympathized with those who were not receiving the recognition or pay that he was. He wasn't blindly loyal to Walt either, something Walt didn't particularly care for. Babbitt was known for telling the story of one of the ink and paint girls whom fainted from malnutrition. She had been skipping lunch in order to save money for her children to eat. Walt still didn't see a problem. Not for the first time, Walt didn't believe his animators would go against him. They were his boys, after all. Walt really didn't like the idea of a union coming in and telling him how to run his studio, either. With outside influences causing tension to mount within the studio, Walt gathered his 1,200 employees into their auditorium and said the following, quote, In the past 20 years I've spent in this business, I've weathered many storms. It's been far from easy sailing. It required a great deal of work, struggle, determination, competence, faith, and above all, unselfishness. Some people think we have a class distinction in the place. They wonder why some people get better seats in the theater than others. They wonder why some men get spaces in the parking lot and others don't. I have always felt, 
and always will feel that the men that contribute most to the organization should, out of respect alone, enjoy some privileges. My first recommendation to the lot of you is this. Put your house in order. You can't accomplish a damn thing by sitting around and waiting to be told everything. If you're not progressing as you should, instead of grumbling and growling, do something about it. This speech, meant to dissuade his staff from joining the union, did the opposite. More animators from Disney joined the union after Walt's little pep talk than after a year of the union campaigning for them too. This included Babbitt. Disney was furious and eventually fired him over joining the union. This was the final straw for the union members within the studio. Walt's animators would go on strike on May 29, 1941. Half the art department walked out, so had many of his high-ranking animators. Additionally, investors were exiting, causing the company's shares to plummet. Walt took the strike personally, of course, believing that the picketers were trying to sabotage his last two hopes for getting the studio back on track, Bambi and Dumbo. Walt refused to negotiate with the union for the first month of the protest. Babbitt and Walt even got into an altercation outside of the Disney studio gates. Holding his ground, Walt released a one-page ad in Variety in which he said that he believed communists were responsible for this walkout, a popular accusation many company executives used when referring to the desire to unionize. Walt got out of Los Angeles for a 10-week trip to South America, while Roy attempted to smooth things over with the union. Roy believed this would be much easier to achieve without Walt's short temper in the mix. Roy viewed the unionization, unlike Walt, as an inevitability, not a passing whim for their staff. While an agreement was met by October 1941, giving the animators almost everything that they had asked for, it affected the production of Dumbo, which had to be finished as cheaply as possible. Many of the animators left for other companies. In fact, when the protests were over, Walt's 1,200 employees were down to a little over 600. Some would return after World War II, during which time the studio was used as a base for anti-aircraft troops, and the studio survived on government contracts to produce propaganda and training films. But Walt would never forgive the participants of the strike and developed a contention with the union. Walt would later blame the strike, and another that came after in the late 1940s, on communism. During the House Un-American Activities Committee hearings, he accused some of his former staff and those who had organized the protests against him as communists. He couldn't prove it, but he still accused them. His statements, and the statements of several others that testified, destroyed hundreds of careers. That's little Feline. Kinda bashful, isn't he, Mama? Well, maybe he wouldn't be if you'd say hello. <laughs> hello, Bambi. I said hello. Well, aren't you going to answer her? You're not afraid, are you? Then go ahead. Go on, say hello. 
Whoa. While Dumbo turned out to be pretty financially successful, Disney's next release was not. Believe it or not, it was Bambi, a film he had been trying to finish for five years. While heralded as being ambitious, the film did not provide the box office numbers Walt needed. It didn't even break even on its first run. If you have a basic knowledge on the chronology of Disney films, you probably know what's coming next. It's a film most of you have probably never seen, as it's never been made widely available in the U.S. for home viewing. That film is Song of the South. After World War II, Walt shifted his focus from European folk tales to Americana, specifically the tales of Uncle Remus, something Walt had optioned in 1939. The film takes place in the South after the Civil War. The film was also shot on location in the South, an area that was at the time steeped in post-World War II racial tensions as white supremacists fought to uphold racial segregation. Disney reached out to members of the African-American activists' communities, including the head of the NAACP at the time, to ensure his film would create a positive and accurate portrayal of social issues. They encouraged him to do so, hoping he would bring a positive image to the African-American community, but did warn him to stay away from stereotypes, including having former enslaved characters sing happy tunes on plantations. Disney listened to what they had to say, but ultimately went with his gut. You know what that movie has a lot of? Former slaves singing about being happy about being on a plantation. At the premiere of the 1946 film, the actor whom had played Uncle Remus, one of the lead actors of the film and the singer of its most popular song, Zippity Doodah, wasn't allowed into the theater in Atlanta that had previously housed the premiere of Gone with the Wind. Critics were split on the content of the film, and the NAACP picketed the film and called for a boycott. Disney couldn't understand why people didn't like the film and blamed communists once more. The film is controversial to this day, chock full of negative racial stereotypes and idealized views of the master-slave relationship. Song of the South is unavailable to view in the U.S. market legitimately, but of course there are links out there should you wish to seek it out. To this day, Song of the South remains a stain on Walt Disney's legacy. I'd say the first thing you need is um, a pumpkin. But, uh, a, a pumpkin? Mm-hmm. Now, um, now the, the magic words. Salagadoolamentrickaboolabibbidi-bobbidi-boo. Put them together, and what have you got? Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. Eight years after his series of flops, came Cinderella in 1950, which would be a much-needed hit for Disney. While Walt had produced the film, he was not as hands-on as he usually was. Walt had finally started making the live-action pictures he had moved to Hollywood to make. Treasure Island was being filmed in London, as was the story of Robin Hood and his Merry Men. Walt more or less stepped away from directly managing the animation department, relying more on his key animators, called The Nine Old Men, Les Clark, Mark Davis, Ollie Johnston, Milt Call, Ward Kimball, Eric Larson, John Lousenberry, Wolfgang Reitherman, and Frank Thomas to ensure his level of quality was being maintained. Exhausted and nearing 50, 
Walt feared he would never make anything better than Snow White. To cool off, Walt took another vacation to a railroad convention. Trains had been a lifelong love of his. On the journey, Walt and Ward Kimball, whom he had brought along, bonded over Walt's life story. The trip reinvigorated him. Walt realized he had a couple of other dreams he wished to pursue that weren't necessarily a part of making movies. By 1952, Walt had been dreaming of building a theme park in the Los Angeles area where not only children, but adults as well, could have a nice stay full of family fun. When a plot in Burbank, California near the studio proved too small, Walt found a sizable chunk of land about 35 miles south of the Walt Disney Studio in Anaheim. This would be the future home of Disneyland. Not wanting to spook or agitate investors of the studio, Walt founded WED Enterprises with his own money to work on his theme park project. The designers and animators he hired to work on the plans for the theme park would come to be known as Imagineers. Once obtaining additional funding from the bank, ABC, and stockholders, Walt sent the Imagineers to every theme park in the U.S. in the middle of 1954 for inspiration. Construction on Disneyland began in July 1954, and Disneyland opened one year later in July 1955. In the first year alone, the park attracted about 3.6 million people. We'll cover a little bit more about Disneyland in a couple of weeks. Disneyland, where young and old alike travel each week to exciting and fun-filled places. Adventureland, here you'll share the thrills and excitement to be found behind the True Life cameras. Frontierland, bringing you tall tales and true of America's wild frontier days. Tomorrowland, a trip to this land of the future, will give you a fascinating glimpse into the world that is yet to come. Fantasyland, a make-believe world where the only requirement for fun and happiness is your imagination. Each week, ABC Television and Walt Disney take you on a visit to one of these timeless lands where young and old alike can enjoy a full hour of wondrous entertainment. Walt and Roy were early adapters to television, with Roy seeing it as a way to market their films in addition to providing entertainment. Walt Disney would become the first major film producer to enter the television landscape with a making of special for Alice in Wonderland, which Roy believed added millions to the film's box office when it was released. In 1953, Roy and Walt signed an agreement with ABC to create a weekly television program showing the progress of Disneyland while promoting the lands in the upcoming park through various means. This also included a clause that required the network to put up $5 million to help Disneyland get built. At the time, the park only existed in Walt's head. Each week, Walt taught audiences about animation, American history, and of course promoted the studio's upcoming films as well. Walt knew how to talk to the baby boomers, then children, whom were steadily driving family spending. One segment featured in the program was a three-part series on Davy Crockett, which became an international sensation. Its theme, The Ballad of Davy Crockett, sold a million records, leading to Walt founding Disneyland Records. The steady revenue from Disneyland eventually allowed Walt to create as he wished without the financial ties of a bank. 
Walt would work on the 1960 Olympics, designing the opening, closing, and medal ceremonies. He also provided four exhibits for the 1964 World's Fair. All four were eventually installed in some way into Disneyland. The Carousel of Progress, Great Moments of Mr. Lincoln, The Magic Skyway, and It's a Small World. Walt also started plans in late 1965 to build a theme park in Florida. Despite his focus on the television show and other endeavors, he also oversaw Lady and the Tramp, the first animated cinemascope film, and Sleeping Beauty, the first animated 70mm film. Think IMAX. It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious Even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious If you say it loud enough, you'll always sound precocious Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious Walt had been a heavy smoker since his ambulance driving days in World War I smoking a pipe as a young man, and eventually moving on to filterless cigarettes. His employees at Disney were often made aware of his presence by his coughing from down a hallway. Some of his employees, quoting Bambi, would shout jokingly, Man is in the forest! Anytime Walt's coughing could be heard from a distance. Mary Poppins would be one of Walt's last major film projects. It had forever irked Walt that despite having won more Oscars than anyone, he had never been nominated for Best Picture. This was to be Walt's run at that. The film was a box office and critical success, and Walt finally received an Oscar nomination for Best Picture, the validation he'd always sought from his industry peers. In his later years, Walt softened and was known for having the Sherman brothers come to his office to play his favorite song from Mary Poppins, Feed the Birds, always tearing up at the end of the song. He also distanced himself from the motion picture studio, and even Disneyland, to focus on creating Epcot, a very different version than what it is today in Florida. According to a source close to him, Walt had felt he'd achieved everything he wanted to in motion pictures and now wished to create his utopian-type village. He wanted Epcot to ensure his legacy while creating 25 years of work for his studio after his death. Walt's community never came to be. Walt was beginning to feel his age more than ever before. He had a number of old injuries flaring up. His hip would bother him so badly that he would occasionally drag his leg as he walked. When Walt finally decided to schedule a spinal surgery that would alleviate some of the pain, in the pre-op, they found something much worse. In November 1966, after months of struggling to draw breath, Walt was diagnosed with lung cancer and given two years to live. He underwent cobalt therapy, an early form of radiation. Not long after... Walt fell ill and was taken to St. Joseph Hospital, located across the street from his beloved studio. Until his last day, Walt would try and explain Epcot to Roy at his bedside, tracing the map with his finger while staring at the ceiling, trying to get Roy to understand his vision. Fifteen days after entering the hospital, on November 30, 1966, Walt Disney died from circulatory collapse a complication from his cancer. His death was worldwide news. Walt's body was cremated and laid to rest at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale, California. 
Walt Disney is gone, but his legacy is far from forgotten. He was a genius, yes, a visionary, of course, but he started out as just a Midwestern boy with a bunch of dreams. He became a man who dared to tap into those fantasies, no matter what anyone else, especially his critics, thought. He gave the world a new art form and a place to allow like-minded individuals to realize their dreams. Though her words are simple and few, listen, listen, she's calling to you. Feed the birds, tuppence a bag, tuppence, tuppence. That's it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I do as much research as I can in the week it takes me to write and produce each episode, so if I got anything wrong, please email me and I will correct it on a future episode. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out for the time being, So if you could rate, review, and subscribe, and even share it on your social media pages so that other people might find this podcast, that would be a huge help. Also, just a heads up, I'm taking Thanksgiving week off because there's no way I'm going to be able to get this set up to my families and back without breaking something. I am very clumsy, and when I'm in my hometown, super lazy. Next week, A World Without Walt and what became of Walt Disney Studios without its namesake founder. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.